Well, this morning we come to Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is a challenging little psalm because it gives you a little bit of whiplash um, and a jolt that when you're reading along, maybe in an unsuspecting way, the psalm feels discordant, feels disjointed because it begins with such jubilant praise and a call, a summons to gather together for worship and to do so joyfully. Uh, it's exalting and, and filled with praise. And then it just takes its turn. And it says, I mean, and it ends with, with such a sobering note. So it, it starts with uh, joy, come, let us sing to the Lord. It ends with, I swore they would not enter my rest. And, and it's not the only psalm that does this. You know, you, you, you read Psalm 1, and again, it's a beautiful psalm about the blessed man who, who's like a tree planted by streams of water. And then it ends on the note of, you know, the wicked and, and what will become of them. So it's not that the psalmist never do this anywhere else. But this, this psalm does have that jarring uh, nature to it. And we need to tackle that today as we uh, jump into Psalm 95 and make our way through book four. Now, the theme of the psalm that I want us to think about today is worship. Okay, and that's obvious from, from the, the whole top part of this. And ultimately, we want to relate the second half of that as well to this theme of worship. This psalm summons us, summons the people of God, calls them to worship, and then gives us some thoughts about what we're doing here and what we ought to be doing here Sunday after Sunday as we gather for corporate worship. Now, I say corporate worship in distinction from personal, private worship when do we worship god right when when and and you know that it, it might be said we we have to remind st students of this right i have to remind students at chapel field of this all the time that worship is not only being done sunday morning at church that's what not they tend to think it's just our default position right we are gathering for worship and then we leave here and we go do other stuff and then we come back for worship and you have to remind your students, that no, all of life is to be filled, saturated with worship, right? We're to be constantly praying, pray without ceasing, right? It's not we only pray when we're down on our knees. No, I have a life of prayer. I'm constantly in dialogue with God. I should be meditating God's law day and night if I'm to be like a tree planted by streams of living water. I should be constantly giving thanks to God, for his great gifts and giving praise to him because he is the God above all gods. It's a, that should be a daily 24-7 characteristic of our life. So I want to say that as a preface. That's not what this psalm is about. But I want to say that because I don't want to slide into the other, uh, the, the, other uh, another, uh, the error of saying, no, Sunday morning, this is the place of worship. It is where we gather for corporate worship, but all of our lives should be worshipful. And I want to encourage you maybe to reflect on that. Would you say when you look at your, your week, when you look at your day, would you say it's worshipful? Are you in dialogue with God? Is the word of God in your heart and on your mind? Do you, do you, are you, are you a, a person giving thanks perpetually to God and praise and confessing your sins? This isn't the only place you do it. Uh, are we doing that throughout the week? So is there a, is there a piety a worship that characterizes us through the week. There must be. There must be, right? We don't want to fall into the, the trap of the ritualist who, no, it's only when we do the ritual that we're doing the thing. No, 
we are created to worship. We are worshiping, I'll tell you that. You're always worshiping something, so, so we ought to be worshiping the one true God. All that being said, that's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is about corporate worship. Notice the plural, right? Let us, right? This is a summons to a place. This is a summons to an event. This is a summons to a gathering. We're doing this together. We're raising our voices, and we're doing so in his presence. We together are shouting joyfully to him. Absolutely, do that by yourself. You should. But here we're thinking about our corporate worship. And so let's take a moment. I want us just to kind of pick up on a few things here. The first thing that I'd like to pick up on, and the psalm has already been read earlier in the service as our Old Testament reading, but one thing I'd like to pick up on is just the first words, Oh, come. That this psalm, again, as we've said many times, is a summons to worship. And this is the only way that you can truly worship the one true God. That is, it is never, ever initiated by man. The worship that we give to the one true triune God is a worship that he calls us into. When we begin our service here, we're intentional about this, and it's not like affirmation's unique here. We're picking up on the, on the tradition, the liturgical tradition of the Christian church, that when we begin our worship here, we begin, right in the bulletin, with a call to worship. That's not an insignificant part of the worship service. It's not like a little appetizer verse that we read from the Psalms just to kind of get the juices going, and then we can, and then we can move into the service. No, it's intentional. It's a call from the Word of God to do what we're about to do. It's us acknowledging Sunday after Sunday as a liturgical habit-forming ritual, an important one, to remind ourselves and train our hearts to understand that the reason you and I are here is that we have been called by God. And we've been called by God on multiple levels, right? On the one hand, just the simple summons, gather people, like a, like a hear ye, hear ye of the medieval king. You know, hear ye, hear ye, the king has summoned everyone to the town square for this to, to hear the decrees of the king. Yes, we've received a summons that way. Oh, come, let us sing. Let's gather together that we might sing. But on a whole deeper level, you and I have been called by God from death to life. Right? Think about Romans 8. We, we went through Romans 8 a few weeks ago, right? For all those he foreknew, them he also predestined that they might be conformed to the image of his son. And all those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. The part of our salvation is a calling, a summoning. And when we thought about that, the kind of calling that we have in our salvation and the kind of calling that has brought you in sincerity here today, the only reason you are here today sincerely worshiping God is because you have first been called. The scriptures tell us very clearly, you were like Lazarus laying in the grave, dead in your sins and trespasses, according to Paul in in, uh, Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. That is to say, you were like Lazarus laying in the tomb, 
and Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit summon you. Bill Spanger, come forth. And the spiritually dead Bill Spanger, who did not initiate the worship, who did not initiate the relationship, who is laying stone dead, spiritually speaking, was summoned to life and in new life ran and embraced his Savior. And here I am today, preaching the word of God, worshiping with you together because I have been called. So we've been called on multiple levels. We've been called out of death into life. And we have also been summoned to this act. As the people of God who have been called from death to life, we've been called to gather and to worship together. I will tell you that this is why we caught the, the, the Zoom sessions. It was a wrestling match, not between people, but just in our own hearts. Like, what do we do? There is a ministry, a potential outreach, right, with the Zoom sessions. That's clear. I have friends uh, around the country who were watching. I have friends who are watching who are not attending church and who have been away from the church who were watching this service. Um, and so there was this, do you want to cut that? If, if, if some people may be blessed by it, do you want to cut that? It was a very hard thing to wrestle with. But the reason ultimately why we decided for now, and if the Lord brings us to another occasion we do, we can start it back up if, if it so required the pandemic or something so requires it. But the reason we cut it off was really because of this. Oh, come. Gather together. It is not good for us to limit our church to Zoom sessions. Again, all things being equal. I mean, sometimes we have occasions that require it. The pandemic required it. Sometimes we have life circumstances that require it. Okay, that, that notwithstanding. We're, I'm talking as a habit. I'm talking as a, a choice. This is the way I want to do it. It's not good for us. The author of the book of Hebrews himself says, we are not to neglect the gathering of the saints. And this psalm summons us to come together. Oh, come. The scripture's filled with this, right? In Isaiah 55, a passage that we use often uh, before the or during the Lord's Supper, you know, come, you who are thirsty, come, buy wine and milk without money price. Come, come here and do it. Come to me, all you who labor. Uh, John in, in what, what some say is even a heavenly liturgy, a heavenly worship service, if you, if you track through the book of Revelation, the book begins, the vision begins in chapter 4 with the Holy Spirit telling John, come up here. Right? John says, I want to climb up into heaven and, and, and participate in the heavenly worship. No, the Holy Spirit summons John, come, come up here. Come to the waters. Hebrews, the passage Mark just read in Hebrews 4. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. The word of God summoning us into his presence. So the first thing this psalm does for us in reminding us of our worship, is it remind, in teaching us of our worship, is that it reminds us that the worship that we offer, what we're doing right here, is commanded for one, and it's ordained and initiated by God. And you are welcome. Come. Come and let us worship. Then secondly, it gives us some descriptions of how we ought to worship. And I just have a few descriptions of it here as we think through 
like verses two through six, as we think about what does worship look like? What ought it to look like? Well, one thing, it ought to be bodily. There is a real physicality to this psalm, right? It involves shouting and singing. And it involves bowing down and kneeling. Very physical things, right? Shout and sing and bow and kneel. And we participate that. So there's a reason, for example, why we stand for certain things. And while we sit, while we bow our heads, while we lift our hands, if we lift our hands, certainly when we say, you know, let us lift up our hearts, I lift up my hands, right? There's a bodily nature to this. And why we sing, we don't just sing in our hearts, we sing with our voices, and we're blessed to do it. The worship of God's people is bodily, physical worship as we gather in a physical place to join our voices together as we sing. And notice then that it, that this, this shouting and singing and the bowing and the kneeling also pick up on two dimensions of this bodily worship. One, it is to be joyful. It is to be joyful. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. I don't know how you felt this week. I don't know what you've been through this week, the challenges that you had, but part of resting on the Lord's day is coming here to the fountain of living waters. Not to affirmation is that, but, but the worship of God's people is that because we're coming to, to, into the presence of God to humble ourselves before his word. And whatever challenges you face this week, nonetheless, he doesn't say, shout joyfully if you had a great week. No, it's here that we come back and everything gets set into perspective as we gather before him and find him to be indeed the chief treasure. Not a lot better than other things. No, no, no. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Right? He is the treasure in the field. And, you've, and you come back here and you see it. And the, what, how's the one hymn go? And the, the things of this world. What's, what's that? I, well, yeah, grow strangely dim. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? Or glorious grace. Yeah, that's right. We come here and then just everything kind of fades out. It's not that the, that stuff's not important. It's just that in the brilliance of his glory, these things, they're reduced. I don't care how significant you think it is. It is insignificant in the light of his glorious grace. It's just, it is. And we come here and we see God and we rejoice in him and we sing psalms and we sing hymns that we didn't sing during the week and we hear the scriptures read and we confess our sins and we hear the assurance of pardon and all of these things help us then to see him and as we do so, this must give us joy. Our worship must be joy-filled. Shout and sing. Come with thanksgiving. Here's another thing I remind my students all the time is that in Romans 1, when Paul describes the, the turning away of man, the inexcusable denial of man to the glory of God, right? They've seen since the creation of the world, his glory has been manifested, all these things. 
But what do they do? They exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of creatures, right? They switch those two things. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And their hearts become hardened and they refuse to give thanks and glory to God. I'll tell you one thing. If we don't have thankful hearts, if we don't have eyes, thankful eyes that can see things as gifts from God, then again, it leads to a curmudgeonly Christian, right? It leads to the, it leads to the, the, the bah humbug Christian. Because we fail. We, our eyes start to get dimmed over. You know, we get the cat, the spiritual cataracts. We can't, I can't discern, or Jerry talking about vision. You know, we, we, we get the double. I can't see clearly anymore the gifts of God. I'm so haggard by the problems of the world, which we can all, we, we all have to battle with. But that's not what this is about. It's here that we get to shed that. It's here that we get to put that away. It's here that we come before the Lord, our God, our maker, and we sing joyfully sing loudly it's one thing i know we've talked about the fact that it's such a small building allows our singing always to sound robust but it is it's it you we we belt it out and we ought to shame on churches that sing sheepishly it's not what the script the scriptures this is something you're actually commanded to do you are commanded to sing and you are commanded to sing joyfully and you are commanded to sing loudly shout to the lord so this bodily worship is joyful, and I, I think that's so helpful, just as a little side note, I just looked down and saw a note I had, that to think that our worship is joyful, that is, it's not servile. We are summoned by God to worship, but we are not summoned as slaves, right? We are summoned as sons and daughters. I think it's so, let the world, let the world think, you know, I, I listen to these atheists go on about, you know, what kind of God demands that you love him? Like, how does that work on a human level? You know, like, what would it mean if I demanded people love me? And if you don't love me, I punish you and all that kind of thing, right? And you start to create this image of a God who, who brings slaves before him and sets them down on their faces, prostrated before him uh, to worship him. But that's just not what you see <laughs> when, you, when you read the scriptures. People fall on their faces before God. Isaiah is down calling curses on himself. And, and the apostle John, when he sees the Lord, he falls down before him, his face right in the dust. But ours is a God that raises them back up, makes them stand and says, I love you. And, and, and the worship is joyful and tender and wonderful. So I just want to mention that with the joyful part. But then secondly, so it's joyful bodily worship, but then it's also reverent. And this is a very fun, this is a very tough balance for a lot of churches to get, right? There are really, you know, joyful churches and there are really reverent churches and sometimes the reverent churches, uh, people from the, 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 the enthusiastic churches think that joy is lacking and the, and the people at the reverent but subdued churches go to the joyful churches and think there's not much reverence there and it's hard for churches to find this balance but our worship must be both. It must be shouting and joyful, filled with thanksgiving and praise, and yet, it must also be reverent, bowing, humbling ourselves, maybe even quieting ourselves. It's interesting that in heaven, there is praise and there is silence before the throne. There's praise in Revelation, and then there's times of silence, contemplation, awe. And as the people of God, we must be those who can shout for joy and who can be quiet. 
before the Lord God. As the word is being read, as the word is being preached, even as we're hearing and confessing our sins, there can be a silence. We can be in awe of him. We must bow before him, humble ourselves before him. Some churches talk too much. We don't come into worship just to say a lot of stuff to God. Sometimes we need to be quiet and bow our heads and hear what God has to say to us as we receive his word. And so this um, in verse six, oh, come, let us worship and bow. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So we have a summons to worship. Then we have this joyful and reverent bodily worship. And then the third point to take from this psalm is why, as if we need a why. I think we know the why, but it's good to hear the psalmist give us the why. And we get that a couple times, four. So you get it in verse three, and then you get it down there again in verse seven, right? So verse two, let us, uh, verse one, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Verse three, for the Lord is the great God the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Then a return. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. Verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Why do we worship? Because he is worthy of it. You're not doing a nice thing for God when you come and worship, right? You are doing the appropriate thing. This is the only right thing to do is to get on our faces before God, to bow before him, to shout joyfully to him. There's no other appropriate thing to do. We do this for in philosophical reasons. We say for ontological reasons. We do it because of who and what he is. He is God. He's not just the greatest thing out there. He is a different thing. Everything you know with your senses is creature. But God is creator. He's in a category of his own. There is nothing to which you can compare him, though he has given us a creation kind of with his fingerprints on it, resembles him in these distant ways by which we can look and understand some things. But were he not to reveal himself to us in this, and especially through his son, to what can we compare God? He's the creator of all things. And he is the one true God above all gods. He is the king above all gods, small g. And by that, he, yes, he means the God of the Assyrians and the gods of the Egyptians, all these would-be gods, these principalities and powers. But if everything that is propped up to be God, everything that, that you give the most value and worth to, that's what worship is in the old English, right? Worthship. To what do you ascribe worth? I think I told you before I had a, a Chinese student once who we were, we were in, having a good time going back and forth doing some apologetic banter back and forth together. And he, he refused to acknowledge that he worships. I, he acknowledged I worship, but he refused to acknowledge that he worshiped. But I told him, Chung, his name was Chung. I said, Chung, worship is just simply the thing. What you worship is the thing you ascribe the most worth to. 
The thing that's top priority on your list is the thing you worship. It's your God. You might not call it a God, but that's what the gods of this age are. I don't know what it is for you, Chung. Maybe it's your, maybe it's money, maybe it's career, maybe it's, you know, a, a girl, maybe it's family, maybe it's honor. I don't know what it is, but whatever that thing is, that's just the most important. Everybody has something that's most important. That's what you ascribe the most worth to. That is worship. We all do it. But what the Bible is saying is not God is one of those things. God is above all of that. He is the creator of all these things. He is the king above all gods. He is worthy of it. And that's why we gather to do this today. You were made to worship this God. That's why you were made. You're image bearers of this God. That is, in order for you to be what you're meant to be, you need to look at him. You need to see him. You need to reflect him. Or else you're going to be distorted. You were meant to be in a worshiping relationship with this God. He is the one true God above all gods. He's God. He is king. He is sovereign. He holds the deep places in his hands. He made the seas and everything in them. With the word of his power, he spoke it into existence. Like This stuff is being said to us to humble us. It's like when Job, who we can all understand, was going through the ringer and wrestling with God, and the wrestling started to turn over to accusation that God humbled Job, and he humbled him with this. Hey, Job, don't forget who I am. I'm the God who just flung the stars, the billions of galaxies into existence. I spoke these things into existence. The, the, the great beasts of the sea, I thought of them. That's who I am. You're a speck of dust. And yet, you as a speck of dust begin to think for a moment that you can understand the calculus of what I'm doing. And how this is just or unjust. We need to be humbled like that. And again, that's part of what we have when we gather in worship. We gather before the one true God and we are humbled and we are reminded that we are dust. He is the sovereign God who holds the great heights in his hand and the great sea in the hollow of his hand. But more than that, verse 7, he's our God. He's not just God. He is just God, but what else this psalm does, and this again takes it away from being servile, as such, as that kind of God, he's our God. There is, as we gather and worship, this is not just this informal thing like, okay, he's the ontological God before whom I have to gather. This is what I have to do. It's part of being a creature. I have to acknowledge my God, so fine, I'll do it. No, he's my God. He's our God. The great and shocking gift of the Old Testament is that to this little piece of dust, Job, and all these little flecks of dust in the great cosmos, Israel, and through Israel to us, the church, God says, here's what I'll do. I will be your God, and you will be my people my sons and daughters. That is, I will have a relationship with you. 
I can't, you know, again, we sang the tune to Psalm 8. But the words of Psalm 8 are appropriate here too. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? (laughs) Why would you even consider us? But that's who we worship as we gather here today. We worship the one true God, but we worship the one true God who is our God. Verse 7, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We're the ones he tends to. We're the ones he loves. He shelters. He feeds. He leads them to green pastures. He leads them to quiet waters. He leads them through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff comfort them and discipline them. We come to worship our Father when we come here, who is the sovereign king above all gods. Let us not forget, though I doubt you do, but let us not forget who it is we worship and why it is we worship. And then finally, the back end of this psalm, the warning. Today, and I titled the sermon today, we could have titled it many things, but I chose the little turning point as the title today. One, for us to reflect on what we're doing today as we gather and worship, but also to hear, to be reminded that it is still today. That it is still today. Because that's what the author of Hebrews says. While it is still called today, right? As long as it's called today, you have time to check yourself. You have time to examine your heart here. Because being in this place for worship and hearing the word of God, and I'll never forget Dr. Alan Mawinney driving him to the airport while I was in seminary. I was the airport runner. And sitting with Dr. Mawinney, and there are certain conversations that stick with me. And one of them, and I don't know what made him say it, but we were just driving. We were talking about reading the scriptures. And I was thinking I was asking him for wisdom on doing devotions and so forth. Because I get these professors and I'd have them. And they couldn't get away from me for for 40 minutes while I got him to the airport. So I'd ask him a lot of questions and badger them. And so I asked Dr. Mooney, he was just such a, I just loved him so much. And, and I asked him about that and he was telling me about reading the scriptures and doing this. And, and then all of a sudden he says to me, but Bill, don't forget that when you read the scriptures, it's a dangerous thing. Because the scriptures will soften or they will harden. Right? It's a two-edged sword, the word of God. You will read the word of God and you better come to it prayerfully because it will solidify your recalcitrance, right? It will solidify your hardness of heart if we do not come prayerfully to it. It's like the sun that that melts the wax and hardens the clay at the exact same time. What substance then is our heart? Are we coming to the word of God prayerfully? In some sense, it's a dangerous thing to come into the presence of God. That's why you can't just wander in. That's why you need to be summoned there. But to hear God's word, to have this sword wielded around your heart. Be careful. And while it's still today, be on guard that you do not harden your heart. Think about the Israelites. Think about how much they had seen. How could their hearts be hardened? They saw the Red Sea split. They had bread coming out of heaven. They had water shooting out of rocks. They beat enemies just because Moses lifted up his arms. They had seen wild stuff. And yet, they did not know my ways, 
and they are a people who went astray in their hearts. So the psalm after this just explosive call to joyful, reverent worship of the one true God, the God above all gods, the God above all creation, then the warning today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Like, like the Israelites did. Let us look at them and learn that even the people who have experienced so much goodness from God so directly, who have received the revelation and the oracles of God, those who have been to the tabernacle, those who have seen the sacrifices, those who have tasted the goodness of God, hardened their hearts. Do not be like them as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me Though they saw my work, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts. Tune my heart, Lord, to sing thy grace. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing that when we sing, come thou fount. Do we know that? Do we feel like our hearts are prone to wander? Look at them. They did it. Their hearts went astray and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath. They will not enter my rest. (laughs) The idea of God swearing an oath is just so unsettling to me. Does he really need to swear an oath? He just say it. It is. But no, no, no. I want you to hear this. I want you to see me raise my hand right now you will not enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews comes along and picks this up and for two chapters just pounds it. Today, today, today. Hey, while it's still today. Hey, you Hebrews who have also tasted. Hey, you've also received the oracles. In fact, you've received more because you've seen the Lord of glory. He's come in the flesh. You've seen the crucifixion. You all are about to eat a meal, you have this meal as your sacrament. Not a Passover about some lamb being killed and blood being put over doorposts. No, what you're going to eat and drink here is that which testifies to the true lamb slain for you. You've seen that. You've tasted that. How joyful should your worship be? How reverent should your worship be? But beware. Beware of coming in here week after week, hearing the word of God over and over and over and the cataracts over the eyes start to grow and the ears begin to grow deaf and the heart begins to get calloused. Come to worship prayerfully so that as we confess our sins, it is sincere confession. It's, it's us peeling the, 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 the callous back off the heart and making it raw and really sensitive. You've had the a blister, and that blister cushions the, 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 the raw skin underneath it, that little bubble of water, and you peel that off of there, and that little cushion is gone. You know how sensitive that skin is. That's the kind of skin you want on your heart and your mind when you come back in here for worship to be sensitive to our own sin, that we might rightly confess it, that my heart might not be hardened, 
that I might hear with fresh ears the word of God and that it might stir me sometimes to sorrow because I am convicted, but through that sorrow to great joy to know that God, my God, has welcomed this sinner into this place. We got to take the warning seriously. I'm not giving you the warning, though I am. The scriptures are doing it. And it's not even the Old Testament scriptures doing it. The author of Hebrews picks it up to the New Testament people of God and says, you need to fear, Hebrews 4.1, lest you fail to enter that rest that is still there for you. And don't think that's impossible, because look at them. And yet, Hebrews 4 ends. Go back and look at it. It begins with, therefore, after what we read in our exhortation in Hebrews 3, about, hey, while it's today, while it's today, and then chapter 4 begins, therefore, let us fear, lest we fail to enter the rest as they did. And then it works us through, and down at the end of chapter 4, you'll remember it says, but we have such a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness, who takes our failings. There's not one failing, not one act of disbelief that you and I have had that we cannot cast right now upon his shoulders and in through him find full forgiveness. And then it ends, therefore, let us come boldly before his throne of grace. Let us come boldly. What do you do with this? What do you do with the warnings? What do you do with the therefore let us fear? And you're going, oh no. You run, you run boldly to the throne of grace. You swing back up to the top of the psalm and you gather for worship and you shout joyfully to the Lord your God. You rip the callus off and you you fall on your face and you bow reverently before him. That's the cycle of the thing. Yes, we hear it, we need to hear it, we need to be convicted of it. And then we run to the throne of grace and we shout joyfully and we bow reverently. So may that be the spirit of what we're doing here at Affirmation as we gather for worship. And if we need to have our hearts tuned, then let this passage, not Bill Spanger, let this passage tune your heart to sing his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God above all gods. And as such, you are our God that the one who flung the stars into their place, the one who holds the seas in the hollow of his hand, the one for whom the nations are less than dust on the scales, is the one who says, you may call me father. You may come boldly before my throne of grace as a son, as a daughter. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you are our king, that you are our shepherd. There is no God like you. There is no God who lays himself down for the sake of his creatures, but you have done so. You have given us your only begotten son that we who believe in him might not perish because of our unbelief, but we may have everlasting life and we thank you for that. So Father, refresh our hearts. Convict us when we need convicting. Guard us from hardness of heart for we know it's possible. Guard us from it and give us sensitive hearts that we might sing your praise. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is hymn 102. Come, sound his praise abroad.